Section 3 of Reflections on the Revolution in France. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reflections on the Revolution in France and on the proceedings in certain societies in London relative to that event. In a letter intended to have been sent to a gentleman in Paris. 1790. By Edmund Burke. Section 3. A few years ago I should be ashamed to overload a matter so capable of supporting itself by the then unnecessary support of any argument. But this seditious, unconstitutional doctrine is now publicly taught, avowed, and printed. The dislike I feel to revolutions, the signals for which have so often been given from pulpits, the spirit of change that is gone abroad, the total contempt which prevails with you and may come to prevail with us, of all ancient institutions, when set in opposition to a present sense of convenience, or to the bent of a present inclination. All these considerations make it not unadvisable, in my opinion, to call back our attention to the true principles of our own domestic laws, that you, my French friend, should begin to know, and that we should continue to cherish them. We ought not, on either side of the water, to suffer ourselves to be imposed upon by the counterfeit wares which some persons by a double fraud export to you in illicit bottoms as raw commodities of british growth though wholly alien to our soil in order afterwards to smuggle them back again into this country manufactured after the newest paris fashion of an improved liberty the people of england will not ape the fashions they have never tried nor go back to those which they have found mischievous on trial. They look upon the legal hereditary succession of their crown as among their rights, not as among their wrongs, as a benefit, not as a grievance, as a security for their liberty, not as a badge of servitude. They look on the frame of their commonwealth, such as it stands, to be of inestimable value, and they conceive the undisturbed succession of the crown to be a pledge of the stability and perpetuity of all the other members of our constitution i shall beg leave before i go any further to take notice of some paltry artifices which the abettors of election as the only lawful title to the crown are ready to employ in order to render the support of the just principles of our constitution a task somewhat invidious these sophisters substitute a fictitious cause and feigned personages in whose favor they suppose you engaged, whenever you defend the inheritable nature of the crown. It is common with them to dispute as if they were in a conflict with some of those exploded fanatics of slavery, who formerly maintained, what I believe no creature now maintains, that the crown is held by divine, hereditary, and indefeasible right. These old fanatics of single arbitrary power dogmatized as if hereditary royalty was the only lawful government in the world, just as our new fanatics of popular arbitrary power maintain that a popular election is the sole lawful source of authority. The old prerogative enthusiasts, it is true, did speculate foolishly, and perhaps impiously too, as if monarchy had more of a divine sanction than any other mode of government, and as if a right to govern by inheritance were in strictness indefeasible in every person who should be found in the succession to a throne, and under every circumstance which no civil or political right can be. But an absurd opinion concerning the king's hereditary right to the crown 
does not prejudice one that is rational, and bottomed upon solid principles of law and policy. If all the absurd theories of lawyers and divines were to vitiate the objects in which they are conversant, we should have no law and no religion left in the world. But an absurd theory on one side of a question forms no justification for alleging a false fact or promulgating mischievous maxims on the other. The second claim of the Revolution Society is a right of cashiering their governors for misconduct. Perhaps the apprehensions of our ancestors entertained of forming such a precedent as that of cashiering for misconduct was the cause that the declaration of the act which implied the abdication of King James was, if it had any fault, rather too guarded and too circumstantial. Footnote. That King James the Second having endeavored to subvert the constitution of the kingdom by breaking the original contract between king and people and by the advice of jesuits and other wicked persons having violated the fundamental laws and having withdrawn himself out of the kingdom hath abdicated the government and the throne is thereby vacant End of footnote. but all this guard and all this accumulation of circumstances serves to show the spirit of caution which predominated in the national councils, in a situation in which men irritated by oppression and elevated by a triumph over it are apt to abandon themselves to violent and extreme courses. It shows the anxiety of the great men who influenced the conduct of affairs at that great event to make the revolution a parent of settlement and not a nursery of future revolutions. No government could stand a moment if it could be blown down with anything so loose and indefinite as an opinion of misconduct they who led at the revolution grounded their virtual abdication of king james upon no such light and uncertain principle they charged him with nothing less than a design confirmed by a multitude of illegal overt acts to subvert the protestant church and state and their fundamental unquestionable laws and liberties they charged him with having broken the original contract between king and people. This was more than misconduct. A grave and overruling necessity obliged them to take the step they took, and took with infinite reluctance, as under that most rigorous of all laws. Their trust for the future preservation of the Constitution was not in future revolutions. The grand policy of all the regulations was to render it almost impracticable for any future sovereign to compel the states of the kingdom to have again recourse to those violent remedies they left the crown what in the eye and estimation of law it had ever been perfectly irresponsible in order to lighten the crown still further they aggravated responsibility on ministers of state by the statute of the first of king william session second called the act for declaring the rights and liberties of the subject and for settling the succession of the crown they enacted that the ministers should serve the crown on the terms of that declaration they secured soon after the frequent meetings of parliament by which the whole government would be under the constant inspection and active control of the popular representative and of the magnates of the kingdom in the next great constitutional act that of the twelfth and thirteenth of king william for the further limitation of the crown and better securing the rights and liberties of the subject they provided that no pardon under the great seal of england should be pleadable to an impeachment by the commons in parliament the rule laid down for government in the declaration of right the constant inspection of parliament 
the practical claim of impeachment they thought infinitely a better security not only for their constitutional liberty but against the vices of administration than the reservation of a right so difficult in the practice so uncertain in the issue and often so mischievous in the consequences as that cashiering their governors dr price in this sermon condemns very properly the practice of gross adulatory addresses to kings instead of this fulsome style he proposes that his majesty should be told on occasions of congratulation that he is to consider himself as more properly the servant than the sovereign of his people for a compliment this new form of address does not seem to be very soothing those who are servants in name as well as in effect do not like to be told of their situation their duty and their obligations the slave in the old play tells his master haes commemoratio est quasi exprobratio it is not pleasant as compliment it is not wholesome as instruction after all if the king were to bring himself to echo this new kind of address to adopt it in terms and even to take the appellation of the servant of the people as his royal style how either he or we should be much mended by it i cannot imagine i have seen very assuming letters signed your most obedient humble servant the proudest domination that ever was endured on earth took a title of still greater humility than that which is now proposed for sovereigns by the apostle of liberty kings and nations were trampled upon by the foot of one calling himself the servant of servants and mandates for deposing sovereigns were sealed with the signet of the fisherman i should have considered all this as no more than a sort of flippant vain discourse in which as in an unsavoury fume several persons suffer the spirit of liberty to evaporate if it were not plainly in support of the idea and a part of a scheme of cashiering kings for misconduct in that light it is worth some observation kings in one sense are undoubtedly the servants of the people because their power has no other rational end than that of the general advantage but it is not true that they are in the ordinary sense by our constitution at least anything like servants the essence of whose situation is to obey the commands of some other and to be removable at pleasure but the king of great britain obeys no other person all other persons are individually and collectively too under him and owe to him a legal obedience the law which knows neither to flatter nor to insult calls this high magistrate not our servant as this humble divine calls him but our sovereign lord the king and we on our parts have learned to speak only the primitive language of the law and not the confused jargon of their babylonian pulpits as he is not to obey us but we are to obey the law in him our constitution has made no sort of provision towards rendering him as a servant in any degree responsible our constitution knows nothing of a magistrate like the justicia of aragon nor of any court legally appointed nor of any process legally settled for submitting the king to the responsibility belonging to all servants in this he is not distinguished from the commons and the lords who in their several public capacities can never be called to an account for their conduct although the revolution society chooses to assert in direct opposition to one of the wisest and most beautiful parts of our constitution 
that a king is no more than the first servant of the public created by it and responsible to it ill would our ancestors at the revolution have deserved their fame for wisdom if they had found no security for their freedom but in rendering their government feeble in its operations and precarious in its tenure if they had been able to contrive no better remedy against arbitrary power than civil confusion let these gentlemen state who that representative public is to whom they will affirm the king as a servant to be responsible it will be then time enough for me to produce to them the positive statute law which affirms that he is not the ceremony of cashiering kings of which these gentlemen talk so much at their ease can rarely if ever be performed without force it then becomes a case of war and not of constitution laws are commanded to hold their tongues amongst arms and tribunals fall to the ground with the peace they are no longer able to uphold the revolution of sixteen eighty eight was obtained by a just war in the only case in which any war and much more a civil war can be just justa bella quibus necessaria the question of dethroning or if these gentlemen like the phrase better cashiering kings will always be as it has always been an extraordinary question of state and wholly out of the law a question like all other questions of state of dispositions and of means and of probable consequences rather than of positive rights as it was not made for common abuses so it is not to be agitated by common minds the speculative line of demarcation where obedience ought to end and resistance must begin is faint obscure and not easily definable it is not a single act or a single event which determines it governments must be abused and deranged indeed before it can be thought of and the prospect of the future must be as bad as the experience of the past when things are in that lamentable condition the nature of the disease is to indicate the remedy to those whom nature has qualified to administer in extremities this critical ambiguous bitter potion to a distempered state times and occasions and provocations will teach their own lessons the wise will determine from the gravity of the case the irritable from sensibility to oppression the high-minded from disdain and indignation at abuse of power in unworthy hands the brave and bold from the love of honorable danger in a generous cause but with or without right a revolution will be the very last resource of the thinking and the good the third head of right asserted by the pulpit of the old jewry namely the right to form a government for ourselves has at least as little countenance from anything done at the revolution either in precedent or principle as the two first of their claims the revolution was made to preserve our ancient indisputable laws and liberties and that ancient constitution of government which is our only security for law and liberty if you are desirous of knowing the spirit of our constitution and the policy which predominated in that great period which has secured it to this hour pray look for both in our histories in our records in our acts of parliament and journals of parliament and not in the sermons of the old jury and the after-dinner toasts of the revolution society in the former you will find other ideas and another language 
such a claim is as ill-suited to our temper and wishes as it is unsupported by any appearance of authority the very idea of the fabrication of a new government is enough to fill us with disgust and horror we wished at the period of the revolution and do now wish to derive all we possess as an inheritance from our forefathers upon that body and stock of inheritance we have taken care not to inoculate any scion alien to the nature of the original plant all the reformations we have hitherto made have proceeded upon the principle of reference to antiquity and i hope nay i am persuaded that all those which possibly may be made hereafter will be carefully formed upon analogical precedent authority and example our oldest reformation is that of magna carta you will see that sir edward coke that great oracle of our law and indeed all the great men who follow him to blackstone are industrious to prove the pedigree of our liberties they endeavor to prove that the ancient charter the magna carta of king john was connected with another positive charter from henry i and that both the one and the other were nothing more than a reaffirmance of still more ancient standing law of the kingdom in the matter of fact for the greater part these authors appear to be in the right perhaps not always but if the lawyers mistake in some particulars it proves my position still the more strongly because it demonstrates the powerful prepossession towards antiquity with which the minds of all our lawyers and legislators and of all the people whom they wish to influence have been always filled and the stationary policy of this kingdom in considering their most sacred rights and franchises as an inheritance in the famous law of the third of charles i called the petition of right the parliament says to the king your subjects have inherited this freedom claiming their franchises not on abstract principles as the rights of men but as the rights of englishmen and as a patrimony derived from their forefathers selden and the other profoundly learned men who drew this petition of right were as well acquainted at least with all the general theories concerning the rights of men as any of the discoursers in our pulpits or on your tribune full as well as dr price or as the abbe Sies. but for reasons worthy of that practical wisdom which superseded their theoretic science they preferred this positive recorded hereditary title to all which can be dear to the man and the citizen to that vague speculative right which exposed their sure inheritance to be scrambled for and torn to pieces by every wild litigious spirit the same policy pervades all the laws which have since been made for the preservation of our liberties in the first of william and mary in the famous statute called the declaration of right the two houses utter not a syllable of a right to frame a government for themselves you will see that their whole care was to secure the religion laws and liberties that had been long possessed and had been lately endangered taking into their most serious consideration the best means for making such an establishment that their religion laws and liberties might not be in danger of being again subverted they auspicate all their proceedings by stating as some of those best means in the first place to do as their ancestors in like cases have usually done for vindicating their ancient rights and liberties to declare and then they pray the king and queen 
that it may be declared and enacted that all and singular the rights and liberties asserted and declared are the true ancient and indubitable rights and liberties of the people of this kingdom you will observe that from magna carta to the declaration of right it has been the uniform policy of our constitution to claim and assert our liberties as an entailed inheritance derived to us from our forefathers and to be transmitted to our posterity as an estate specially belonging to the people of this kingdom without any reference whatever to any other more general or prior right by this means our constitution preserves an unity in so great a diversity of its parts we have an inheritable crown an inheritable peerage and a house of commons and a people inheriting privileges franchises and liberties from a long line of ancestors this policy appears to me to be the result of profound reflection or rather the happy effect of following nature which is wisdom without reflection and above it a spirit of innovation is generally the result of a selfish temper and confined views people will not look forward to posterity who never look backward to their ancestors besides the people of england well know that the idea of inheritance furnishes a sure principle of conservation and a sure principle of transmission without at all excluding a principle of improvement it leaves acquisition free but it secures what it acquires whatever advantages are obtained by a state proceeding on these maxims are locked fast as in a sort of family settlement grasped as a kind of mortmain for ever by a constitutional policy working after the pattern of nature we receive we hold we transmit our government and our privileges in the same manner in which we enjoy and transmit our property and our lives the institutions of policy the goods of fortune the gifts of providence are handed down to us and from us in the same course and order our political system is placed in a just correspondence and symmetry with the order of the world and with the mode of existence decreed to a permanent body composed of transitory parts wherein by the disposition of a stupendous wisdom moulding together the great mysterious incorporation of the human race the whole at one time is never old or middle-aged or young but in a condition of unchangeable constancy moves on through the varied tenor of perpetual decay fall renovation and progression thus by preserving the method of nature in the conduct of the state in what we improve we are never wholly new in what we retain we are never wholly obsolete by adhering in this manner and on those principles to our forefathers we are guided not by the superstitions of antiquarians but by the spirit of philosophic analogy in this choice of inheritance we have given to our frame of polity the image of a relation in blood binding up the constitution of our country with our dearest domestic ties adopting our fundamental laws into the bosom of our family affections keeping inseparable and cherishing with the warmth of all their combined and mutually reflected charities our state our hearths our sepulchres and our altars through the same plan of a conformity to nature in our artificial institutions and by calling in the aid of her unerring and powerful instincts to fortify the fallible and feeble contrivances of our reason we have derived several other and those no small benefits 
from considering our liberties in the light of an inheritance. Always acting as if in the presence of canonized forefathers, the spirit of freedom, leading in itself to misrule and excess, is tempered with an awful gravity. This idea of a liberal descent inspires us with a sense of habitual native dignity, which prevents that upstart insolence almost inevitably adhering to and disgracing those who are the first acquirers of any distinction. By this means our liberty becomes a noble freedom. It carries an imposing and majestic aspect. It has a pedigree and illustrating ancestors. It has its bearings and its ensigns armorial. It has its gallery of portraits, its monumental inscriptions, its records, evidences, and titles. We procure reverence to our civil institutions on the principle upon which nature teaches us to revere individual men, on account of their age and on account of those from whom they are descended. All your sophisters cannot produce anything better adapted to preserve a rational and manly freedom than the course that we have pursued, who have chosen our nature rather than our speculations, our breasts rather than our inventions, for the great conservatories and magazines of our rights and privileges. End of section 3